Welcome, listeners, to the Religious Studies Project. I'm Dave McConaughey, and with me today is... Brianne Fallon. Now, this week we have an episode that I recorded very recently with Dr. Kathleen McPhillips from the University of Newcastle. I've known Kath for a couple of years now. We first met at an AASR conference that was actually combined with the NZASR in New Zealand. And Kathleen and I have always had a similar focus in our work in that we generally seem to focus on religion and violence, although from very different angles. I interviewed Kathleen on her work on the Australian Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse. And the reason this episode was recorded so recently was Kathleen uh, mentioned to me that she was releasing her own podcast that was speaking with the survivors of sexual abuse within the Catholic Church and their experience of the Australian Royal Commission. So I wanted to record an episode that spoke about her work, but also was able to plug her very important podcast that gives these survivors a voice after such trauma. So in a minute, we're going to start the episode, but I do want to give a a warning that this is a a difficult episode. It's a very heavy episode. There is a formal trigger warning at the start of, of the podcast. So just bear that in mind before you start listening. But other than that, let's take it away. Thank you very much for that introduction. I am here with Dr. Kathleen McPhillips, or Kath, and she is going to talk to us today about a a sensitive topic. And before I introduce um, Kath to you, I just wanted to let everybody know that we will be speaking about some difficult material in this podcast today. Um, So please make sure that you are aware of that going forward and that you do look after yourself or seek any assistance if you do need it when listening to this podcast. So today we have Dr. Kathleen McPhillips. She's a sociologist of religion, gender, and trauma at the University of Newcastle, Australia. She has written and published extensively in the field of gender-based violence and institutional child sexual abuse. Her work considers the social and gender impacts of institutional violence in religious organisations, and particularly the Catholic Church. Kathleen has attended the Australian Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse and has numerous grants and published most recently in the journals Child Abuse and Neglect, History and Health and Religions. She is currently working on a podcast project with survivors of institutional abuse in religious organisations. Thank you so much for joining me today, Kath. It's a pleasure, Brie. Now, For many of our listeners who are overseas and not located in Australia, the Australian Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse may not be something that they're familiar with. Would you mind just giving us an overview of of what that was? Yes, certainly. So the Australian Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse ran between 2012 and 2017, and it was a national inquiry. And it followed quite a few inquiries that ran from the late 1990s through the 2000s into the status of childhood um, in Australia. And the Australian Royal Commission really 
came, well, most, most public inquiries come too late, as you know, after there has been significant harm uh, impacting particular cohorts or populations. So a lot of the institutional child sexual abuse that the Royal Commission looked at happened from the 1950s and 60s through to the 1990s. So the Australian Royal Commission was very, very well funded. It was a bipartisan political project, so it was supported by all all parties. Um, and it was the largest Royal Commission that has ever been held in Australia. It was also unique because um, they had to pass special legislation in order for certain elements of the commission to proceed. Uh, in particular, they allowed for people to give evidence in a what's called a private session. So there were over 8,000 private sessions where um, an adult survivor of child sexual abuse in an institution could attend and listen, be heard, tell their story to one of the six royal commissioners. So there were six royal commissioners um, and they heard over heard these eight thousand accounts. There were also fifty seven public hearings, or what's called case studies, that investigated particular institutions and their responses to disclosures and complaints from um, either children or families or communities um, of child sexual abuse. So the focus was most definitely on. Um, the institutional responses, and it covered all institutions across Australian society. So there were, for example, there were schools, there were arts and music societies, there were there were sports clubs, um, scouting institutions, and of course religious organisations. And pretty pretty early on in the Royal Commission, it was clear that um, it was the religious organisations who were having um, who were reporting um, quite high levels of child sexual abuse and the most problems with um, institutional responses to those disclosures. Uh, and of those religious organisations, the Catholic Church was by far the most impacted. And all the statistics and, and the data uh, that the Royal Commission collected is on their archived website. So if you Googled the Australian Royal Commission into institutional responses to child sexual abuse, you would find their website. Maybe we can we can put that up on um, on this podcast so that people can, can Yeah, definitely. Add, yeah. So um, the other thing about the Royal Commission was that they um, had three arms. So they had their the public and private hearing. Then they also had um, a policy arm. So they were working, they had a whole section working on policy, looking at um, institutional policies, looking at federal policies into child safety and child protection. Uh, and then they had a research arm and the research arm um, was about um, uh, producing uh, ongoing research as well as um, understanding what research had been done to date. So there is this incredible archive there on the website um, that researchers can access. And then finally they had um, a final report. So there were 17 volumes in this final report and the entire final report is available um, also on the website. And of that, volume 16 deals with religious institutions and in that volume there are three separate books 
Um, so it's a very large uh, collection, the three books. And um, book two is um, dedicated wholly to the Catholic Church because, um, well, there were so many complaints uh, about the Catholic Church and, the, and it was such a sort of complex investigation. So um, it has been um, noted as being the most successful public inquiry into institutional child sexual abuse, certainly in Australia, probably globally. Um, the, the the nature of a public inquiry um, into child sexual abuse is incredibly difficult to run. Um, you'll be aware of the ICSA inquiry in England and Wales, um, which has had um, multiple um, issues and problems. Um, the inquiry in Scotland has also had issues. Um, that there, there have been multiple inquiries at various levels in the US and across Europe. Um, and they've produced a very important information about the widespread nature of institutional child sexual abuse. Um, and it's important to say as well that it's an incredibly difficult topic to look at because, as you, as you said at the beginning, um, Brie, when you gave the content warning, um, it's a very distressing topic. We, we do not like to hear that that children have been the subject um, of harm in any way. Um, yet it does seem to be the case that in modernity, in late modernity, uh, children have been subject to a huge amounts of harm both institutionally uh, and in the family and community environment, and that that actually continues to this day. So one of the one of the statements that the Royal Commission has made at the end of the Royal Commission was that um, although the they had collected a lot of data and they had seen that there'd been a big impact publicly, um, they did not consider children to be completely safe in public institutions. So there's still quite a long way to go. Um, the report, the final report, had over 400 recommendations. Um, across not just the institutions but also for federal and state governments um, in a whole range of areas, including um, institutional uh, changes, um, changes to laws at the state level and the federal level and a building of uh, scaffolding of um, policy um, responses um, for children children's safety. So a lot of that is underway and there have been some very significant um, uh, new laws instituted at state levels, um, some of which are trying to deal with the fact that institutional responses to child sexual abuse um, were often made by senior leaders in organisations, yet there has not been uh, until recently laws that actually prosecute people who fail to act um, when they know that there's been criminal um, activity happening. So that, that is certainly the case. And, and there has also been some laws directed particularly to religious organisations, um, which have, um, tend to have their own religious law courts. Uh, and um, this has been a big problem uh, because, in effect, you know, a secular society, um, you have the state and the state laws, and then you have these um, smaller groups, religious groups, which they have their own laws. And sometimes those laws um, have have um, been impinged on not just state laws, but um, failed to deal with the, with um, disclosures of child sexual abuse and stymied the processes of. Um, survivor justice. So 
Um, I think I think that's a bit of an introduction to the Royal Commission. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. That was a, such a wonderful overview in terms of um, what it was looking into, the different institutions, mm. the the key f- some of the some of the findings that came out of it, but also situating it for us in a bit of a global context. Yeah. I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind just briefly telling us what your role was in the commission. Right. So, um, where I had already become involved as a um, ethnographer and um, a social researcher, so I had attended a, a previous public inquiry um, into child sexual abuse at the state level. Uh, and then, when the Royal Commission was announced, I knew that I wanted to um, to research the Royal Commission and that um, we all had a sense, or those of us in the area, researching in the area, that it was going to be very significant. So um, I was a researcher and ethnographer and I attended the um, many, many hearings um, of the Royal Commission and um, I have published many articles on the Royal Commission. Um, I also, with some colleagues, um, organised... Um, a seminar um, bringing together people who are working at the Royal Commission in terms of research who are contributed. Um, and um, so, yes, as a researcher, it was just a fantastic opportunity to be able to be there on the ground. Um, I also became involved in the uh, local sort of politics of child sexual abuse in the Catholic Church and Anglican Church uh, in the area where the University of Newcastle is. So that's the Hunter area, Hunter region in New South Wales. And the Hunter region is what they call an epicenter of institutional child sexual abuse. So, um, it's sort of reporting levels are very significant. And child sexual abuse in religious organisations has been very widespread. So I was very curious about why this area in particular was an epicentre. And um, there are um, two other epicentres in Australia, in Melbourne and Ballarat. And uh, so I was doing some comparative work there on on why some areas might be more vulnerable than others. Um, and, yes, yeah, so I have... Um, uh, been running some research projects locally as well as nationally. And looking at your work, um, particularly at coming from a, a religious studies background, you're um, a sociologist in religion, the concept of stigma comes up in your work quite frequently. Mm. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Um, yes. Yeah, so I became interested in um, the experiences that survivors were um, noting in both dealing with the institutions in which they've been harmed and then also um, at the Royal Commission itself. Uh, and I did quite a large research project where I was interviewing um, um, people in the Catholic diaspora and including survivors about how they had experienced the Royal Commission. Um, so one of the things that became clear quite early on was that there was uh, a notable level of um, stigma attached to survivors who were disclosing their accounts um, of child sexual abuse. And I became very interested in that because I had w- read the work of Irving Goffman uh, who uh, many people will be familiar with. And um, so I was very familiar with his 
um, framing of stigma and I wanted to see if it had any resonance in the institutional environment. And once I started exploring it, I began to see that there were these sort of institutional practices, I guess they are almost like techniques, bureaucratic techniques that were being employed to um, develop what I'm calling institutional um, stigma. And that is where it's it's a kind of form of structural injustice where where you can't point the finger and say that that somebody's actually breaking a law here, but that the whole bureaucratic machinery is oriented towards constructing survivors as um, uh, being problems problem makers as being um, difficult um, and um, there were a, there are a whole lot of ways in which this happened they they could slow up the process of um, reporting um, or, and of investigating particular individuals uh, I, I, I did a case study of um, one of the public hearings public hearing number eight um, that dealt with a very famous case now into John Ellis um, who was a survivor of child sexual abuse um, by his parish priest and when he tried to access the um, towards healing protocol, which is the protocol that the Catholic Church had instituted for survivors. He just kept hitting up against these brick walls and he couldn't get anywhere. And the Royal Commission did a very, did a fantastic forensic, uh, analysis of, of exactly what these brick walls were and what happened. Um, so I realized that, um, I, I, I attended that, that public hearing. Um, and I was just, um, really intrigued by the fact that the um, bureaucrats, the Catholic bureaucrats who were giving evidence at this Royal Commission, you could just see that they were sort of using the the, the, the mechanisms of, of organisational bureaucracy to stymie this case going forward. Um, so then I started looking at other survivors' experiences in Towards Healing um, and also in the court system, and I saw the same thing, that there was this kind of institutional stigmatisation happening where where the aim was to kind of marginalise a survivor and make that survivor look um, pretty dodgy. And then a- anybody who was associated, because it's it's sort of stigma, is it like a contamination? Once one person is um, identified as being problematic, then anybody who's around that person is is also going to be sort of um, impacted and affected and in, in, in effect stigmatised. So I saw, I also saw that happen to survivors, to their supporters and their families, even to communities. So um, the survivor community, for example, in the Hunter region um, has, I believe, been affected by the stigmatisation um, and um, it, it has terrible effects on people's health. Um, so this is above and beyond the impacts that survivors will be experiencing from having been sexually abused as a child. They also then have to deal um, with these um, stigmatising impacts um, that the institution sets up. And, of course, not just the institutions but sometimes society um, in general. And um, as I said at the beginning, it took a very long time for the Royal Commission to actually be announced and and to to get going. There had been sort of decades of child abuse prior to this. So um, 
it it just sort of um, struck me as being um, another sort of form of injustice towards survivors that not only have they sort of uh, experienced this terrible harm as a child, but then once they get to to adulthood and they try and deal with it by reporting it and speaking about it, they were further marginalised. And of course, we must wonder whether that prevents other people from coming forward and whether that's part of the the process of so-called dealing with the problem, as you say, if it if it is sort of a, a disincentive um, for people coming forward. I'm not sure what you think of that. I, I mean, I think that's a really excellent point and that is indeed the case, um, that one of the things that happens when survivors actually disclose is that um, it's, it's traumatising. So even if they disclose into a sort of supportive environment and they get hurt and many people who gave evidence uh, in the private sessions at the Royal Commission um, were doing so for the first time um, and they still um, reported feeling traumatised by it because you can completely understand that they're, 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 they're being asked to kind of relive this sort of terrifying traumatic experience they had as a child. So in itself, um, it's, it, it is just very difficult to disclose, but um, the the evidence that we have so to date is that probably um, about twenty percent of people will disclose institutional sexual abuse. So eighty percent never tell their story, um, which is a lot of people who are sort of living with um, pretty debilitating. Um, histories and maybe also um, traumatic impacts of this. Uh, and it's exactly as you say, um, once survivors see that other survivors who do disclose um, have such a hard time, they're unlikely to um, want to go forward and put themselves through that process. I mean, it takes incredible courage and um, and you know, you you just sort of like I, I've met many survivors who who have um, disclosed um, across a variety of settings, um, and they 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 report like these very sort of difficult processes. Um, the Royal Commission itself was in uh, a very it was set up. Um, they 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 set up the Royal Commission so carefully. I mean, they they looked at all the other sort of reports that have been done and public inquiries. They looked very, very closely at what happened in Ireland um, and they wanted to make sure that um, survivors were going to feel um, secure and safe in coming forward. So um, from the very beginning, they had what we call trauma-informed um, practices. So um, survivors were treated with great care and respect and uh, in a public hearing, a survivor um, they were always the first to give evidence and the commissioners were always very careful to thank them for their contribution and their stories were validated. So there was never a question that that this hadn't happened. That, in fact, had been one of the institutional techniques that um, religious organisations had made um, when a survivor told their story, like they questioned it, did it really happen? Um, sometimes survivors were just not believed at all. Um so that's a pretty pretty traumatic situation when when your own experience is being denied at that level. But the Royal Commission itself was very careful about that. But even so, uh, even so, with um, those very careful um, and empathic responses, most people will never tell their story about what happened to them. 
It's um, interesting what you say there that it's the stigma sounds like it's mainly coming from from the institution, and I wonder if any of the survivors that you've worked with talked about what this did to their to their faith, to their religiosity, to their mm-hmm. spirituality. Do they did many people lose their faith? Could you tell us more? I could, and um, maybe you could put a link up to to an article I wrote called "Soul Murder." Um, I'd be very happy um, to to give you that link. So um, that was published in the Journal of Australian Studies in a special issue that I was also an editor of uh, on the um, a group of papers on evaluating the Royal Commission. So what I did was um, I went through all the case studies that. Um, uh, I think it was 34 case studies that looked at religious organisations and I wanted to know what the impact of um, of child sexual abuse but also disclosure uh, had had on survivors' faith and, um, and religious experience. And so I just sort of set up a methodology where I systematically um, went through every case study, public hearing, um, and then I went through some of the private session uh, material that had been published. And with without doubt, it had an enormous impact. Um, it was a sort of form of spiritual abuse or spiritual violence, really. Um, many people did lose their faith. But um, there was a, a tremendous amount of angst associated with that. On the other hand, um, trauma is very individual. So there, there's also a group of, of survivors for, who, who managed to separate that out and have stayed within their faith communities um, and have found some support and solace there. Um, so, but, but I think in general, um, from my research and from what I noted in the Royal Commission, uh, that wasn't the case, that the, the, the the, the the overall experience of survivors is that is that their faith was irreparably damaged um, and they just could not find their way back um, to um, that level of religious experience and also to those faith communities and to be to be honest like um, I haven't explored this as a project down down the line but the experience of of faith communities, um, for example, um, parishes and Catholic churches, uh, there has been a huge amount of harm done there to communities. They've been very divided. Um, the fact that um, in a lot of instances the church has allowed priests who were involved in covering up cases of perpetrators um, to allow um, those priests who are involved in the cover-up to keep practicing has done a lot of harm. Um, there were also sort of um, where the church failed to respond adequately at a public level um, to um, exposure of uh, of cases, etc., has also done a lot of harm. So, so parishes have been deeply affected by this, and there's been uh, so there hasn't been enough. A scaffolding and assistance for parishioners to manage this. So, I mean, I think, I think the Anglican Church has done a bit better than the Catholic Church here. So they have kind of tried to roll out um, programs that 
that deal with conflict res- resolution. I don't know how successful that has been. Um, it hasn't been any research done on that yet. Um, but I wonder about the, the, the widespread influence um, of this terrible issue on general, on the faith of parishioners as well, who in some ways, like we would say, have suffered the vicarious trauma. Um, mm-hmm. They're not, they're not primary um, sufferers, but definitely the vicarious trauma from the whole issue. Definitely. And if we think about the Catholic Church and the sort of multi-layered nature of that, like if you, you're looking at your local priest, and then of course, many of our listeners will know the case around George Pell. Mm. Um, I don't know if the correct term is cardinal or archbishop. Um, I'm unsure. Um, but of course, having that sort of multi-layered sort of sense of, of, of distrust or, um, as you say, sort of spiritual abuse throughout the church, I think is definitely worth um, some research there into that that impact on parishioners. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. When when you do get sort of very high level um, clerical leaders um, uh, who have been either sort of charged with child sexual abuse or charged with um, um, not reporting it and covering it up, um, then you do get um, uh, this kind of wide sense of betrayal um, to Catholic values, and um, one of one of the sort of significant problems with religious organisations is that they're generally set up in secular society um, as the kind of moral voice um, yeah. for you know articulating um, clear values, and um, so um, and they they often have responded to that in you know that's what they do they they tell us um, what our values are and and um, and what our ethical practice should be. So to to find that it's those organisations and the and the clerical leaders of those organisations who have in fact been most involved in criminality practices, um, then you get this um, absolute sense of well, some people will find it very hard to believe um, that people could do that, and it's very polarising. So when George Pell was um, in court. Um, uh, and his case was being heard. Um, the Australian public, a, a lot of people were very divided. Um, and, um, yeah, so, so it is, it, it's, a, it's being doubly impacted by the fact that these are religious organizations who was, who we are supposed to trust and who we have entrusted our children to. Um, and yet they, it's this organization. Um, that has led us down the most. So um, it does have this widespread impact. And it's um, you, you can see Goffman here again with stigma, like um, George Pell has been um, very heavily stigmatised, a lot of the perpetrators have. And you can also see that possibly like there is a place for stigma here, like he, he's been noted as a dangerous person um, and um, we'd be unlikely to trust him again. He's gone back to the Vatican. We're not sure what he's doing there. Um, and we're wondering why the Pope hasn't just sort of um, kind of sacked him really and said, no, there's no place for you here. Um, he, you know, it's quite likely that there may be other cases against George Pell down the down the track. The Victorian police still have that second, um, uh, that second um, um, event that they haven't um, yet closed off. So, um, and it's, it's not just George Pell, Archbishop Philip Wilson, 
um, was charged under New South Wales laws with failing to report um, what he knew about a perpetrator in um, the Maitland region of New South Wales. And he was charged and convicted and then he was let off on appeal. Um, and he's now retired. But um, the the church has been very slow to sort of um, um, deal with perpetrators and those people who, those clerical leaders who've been in, involved. Um, so they haven't, haven't laicized. A lot of perpetrators have never been laicized. Um, and the Vatican is um, at fault here. It's been incredibly slow. So, And if we think um, about, again, that sort of idea of sort of shaking somebody's foundations of their faith, I mean, yeah. if not only has your church essentially done the wrong thing in either turning a blind eye, covering up, letting these people, you know, do what they did, but then they're also not dealing with it either. And so you mm. sort of have, you know, whichever way you look at it, it, it can leave one on a, sh- on a shaky foundation. But I do, before we wrap up, want to talk about your podcast Yes, that you've got coming out. Tell us about um, this podcast you have coming out in uh, just a couple of weeks. Yes, that's right. So I'll, I'll also send you the link for that. So that is, this is um, a podcast that has been um, developed through the Survivor Story Project. So um, one of the things that happened after the Royal Commission closed was that survivors no longer had the opportunity to tell their story like they had in the private sessions. And... Um, so I became sort of interested in this and I, th- I wondered what other opportunities were available. And I, I was very inspired by the Shoah Foundation, which is uh, a very, very large foundation in the US based in California, um, where survivors of the Holocaust had been telling their story for quite a while. So um, using that as a kind of model, um, I I got funding to do a small pilot project. So this these this podcast is five stories from survivors of child sexual abuse in churches in the Hunter region. Um, and they came in and they um, we did an interview and they told their story. Um, and they're all kind of um, they're quite different stories, but um, they're very inspiring, very inspiring. And um, uh, so, and they were very brave to tell their stories as well. Uh, so that's that's about to open um, on the university website. And if it's got legs and, and it's, it's uh, um, going to be a um, useful and helpful thing for survivors, then um, I'd look, I'm going to look at expanding that. It's such a wonderful project um, for you to have taken up and we will definitely put the link to the podcast up on the page for this episode. So I promise I'll put up the website for the Royal Commission archived site, the Your Soul Murder article and the podcast link so that our listeners have access to everything that we've spoken about today. I just wanted to say thank you, Kath, for for sharing with us, but also for engaging in work in such a difficult area. It's it's so important that we have people who work in this really heavy material. And I just wanted to thank you again for sharing with us. And if there's any final words you have for us? Um, no, just to say thanks for that. It's really great to um, to talk to you and to share this material. I think um, it's a, just a really, really important time to be doing research in this area and um, um, I'm very sort of encouraged and inspired by, by what I'm doing. So 
uh, and the support that I get. So thanks, Bree, and I hope this material is useful to other researchers and to students. Great. Thank you so much, Kath. Thanks. Now, that was the last of our regular podcasts for this half of our 10th season, the last of our so-called regular podcasts for this year. But next week, we have the much-beloved mid-year Christmas game show special, which is always one of our most popular episodes. So we will see you all next week for that wonderful episode. But before we let you go, we want to talk about something that we have coming up at the start of next year, which is very exciting. Dave, why don't you tell us about that? Bree and I are really thrilled to be co-editors here, managing the Religious Studies Project in its 10th season. It, it's really special um, that we've been entrusted with uh, the thing that um, Chris and David built and so one of the things that we wanted to do was celebrate the 10 years of podcasting that they've done. And so when we return in January, we're going to have a, a special uh, episode that celebrates the 10 years uh, and speaks with some of editors uh, in the past uh, who will relate their experiences working with the RSP and what it has meant to them. Regular episodes will will resume after that. But we'll see you in January, on the second Monday in January, the 11th, after a long and well-deserved um, uh, holiday break for, for us all. But until then, all that's left to say is thanks, thanks for, for listening. listening. The RSP is sponsored by the BASR, NAASR, and the IAHR, and is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, a Scottish charitable incorporated organization. Find out more at religiousstudiesproject.com. Brought to you by editors Brianne Fallon and David McConaughey, and founding editors Chris Cotter, that's me, and David Robertson, that's the other guy. Our features are edited by Rebecca Barrett-Fox and Lauren Osborne, and our opportunities digest by Ella Buck. Audio editing by Alex Matthews, podcast transcription by Andy Alexander and Savannah Finver, and social media managed by Ray Radford and Candice Mixon. Don't forget, you can support the project by using our Amazon affiliate links or donating at patreon.com backslash project RS. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, iTunes, and other portals. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>